Hello, everyone, and welcome to my second audio exclusive review here on the Dan Merle Podcast Network. And today, I'm not going to be talking about one movie. I'm actually going to talk about several movies that came out earlier this year that I didn't get to do a review for for one reason or another. They're all movies that you can watch in some way at home right now, and I think that all of these movies are relevant during this awards season, or movies that should at least be relevant during this awards season. Let's start with a movie that's almost bound to be on my list of my top favorites of 2021, and that is the film Annette, which is currently streaming on Amazon Prime Video. And I will say this up front, which is that this movie is either very, very much your thing or very, very much not your thing. And I completely understand whichever way that you fall. The movie has an original story and music by Sparks, the band that was the subject of Edgar Wright's documentary that came out earlier this year, The Sparks Brothers, and it's directed by Leos Carax, whose previous film, Holy Motors, was also an underground hit. He also won the Best Director Prize at the Cannes Film Festival this year for this film. Annette is really difficult to explain to somebody if they ask what it's about. In general, it's basically about a bad boy stand-up comedian named Henry McHenry, who's played by Adam Driver, who falls in love with an opera singer named Anne Defrenu, who's played by Marion Cotillard. Their stormy relationship produces a baby girl named Annette, who is a puppet for most of the film, and that's not a metaphor, but also it kind of is. Annette also has unique talents, which brings Simon Helberg into the mix as a musician known only as the accompanist who is a mentor to Annette and the family and may also hold a more significant role that drives a wedge between these two lovers. As awkward as it is for me to attend anything that concerns Anne, the future of Annette is something that concerns me. Excuse me one more time. There's no two ways about it. Annette is a weird movie. If it's not vibrating on your frequency, I completely get it. But it is also one of my favorite movies of the year, which is kind of surprising because surrealism is very hit or miss for me. The music is bizarre, but also catchy, much like most of Sparks' music tends to be. And I think that the production design is also top-notch. The craftsmanship behind this movie is the kind of stuff that never gets recognized because this movie is too small, but I think should be. It's really hard to recommend or not recommend this movie, because it is so specific. It is undeniably unique. If you're not sure if you'd like this movie or not, I'd recommend watching The Sparks Brothers, which in the U.S. is currently streaming on Netflix. If you dig the vibe that Sparks has in that movie, then I think you're much more likely to enjoy this movie. I found Annette to be an intoxicating experience, but your mileage may vary. Do you know what Bowie said about Bob Dylan? A voice like sand and glue. There are Plenty of pretty voices with nothing to say. Next up is a movie called Coda, which is currently streaming on Apple TV+. And I think Coda is the kind of movie that a lot more people would be talking about if it hadn't been snapped up for streaming, specifically by Apple. It won a lot of the top prizes at this year's Sundance Film Festival, but when it was bought by Apple TV+, which is not exactly a headline location for getting a lot of eyeballs, I think a lot of the audience went along with that sale. However, it is still generating a lot of awards buzz thus far, so maybe it will motivate people to seek it out. 
CODA is an acronym meaning child of deaf adults. Amelia Jones stars as Ruby, the only hearing member of a deaf family that includes her mother, played by Marley Matlin, her father, played by Troy Kotzer, and her brother, played by Daniel Durant. Ruby has a passion for music and is encouraged by her music teacher, who is played by the comedy star Eugenio Derbez, but she faces a decision as her family pressures her not to study music in college, but to stay home as their connection to the hearing world while they launch their own fishing business. In an alternate world, I could see this movie generating the kind of box office theatrically as a breakout hit like Lady Bird did a few years ago because this is a crowd pleaser. It's full of heart and laughs and genuine emotion. And I worry that apart from any awards show buzz, that CODA is going to be underseen because not that many people have Apple TV+. And it really does deserve to find a wide audience. I think if it had been sold to a service like Netflix, it really would have created a lot of buzz. The performances in this film are superb, and it's a story of family conflict that still allows the love of the family to be the focus and to shine through no matter what. Several of the cast members are in contention for Academy Award nominations and many of the other awards that are happening this time of year. And the movie features a finale that is sure to tug at your heartstrings. I don't normally recommend jumping through the many hoops of signing up to a streaming service, but I think it's worth getting an Apple TV Plus trial just to watch this movie and, you know, maybe check out Ted Lasso while you're there because that show's pretty good too. You know, at school you do tenses. Yeah. Yeah. It's the past, the present, the future. Right. Well, here, there is only one tense. There is no future. Past and the present are the same thing. Kristen Stewart has been getting a lot of buzz for her role in the movie Spencer, which is currently available via premium video on demand on several services. It will be on physical media in the U.S. on January 11th. It's still in some theaters here in the United States as well. Stewart has been the Best Actress frontrunner all awards season for her performance as Princess Diana in this historo-fiction movie from director Pablo Lorraine, who directed Natalie Portman to a Best Actress nomination in a similar film called Jackie. The movie takes place over the Christmas holidays with Diana and her husband Prince Charles on the brink of divorce. Unhappy and smothered by the royal life, Diana finally comes to terms with her lack of agency as she struggles with the decision to break away from the traditions of the monarchy. I saw this movie twice and I have to say that I was a lot less taken with it the second time. Kristen Stewart is a really great actress who's gotten a bad name because she chose to be in the Twilight films to help kick off her career, but this is a very mannered performance. She's not playing Diana so much as she's playing Kristen Stewart playing Diana. They are circling us, didn't you know? Don't you read? It seems they're circling just me. Not you, just me. And I'm not necessarily knocking that, it's just that this is not a naturalistic performance, just like it's not a very naturalistic movie, and I think that's going to turn some people off. I think it's likely that her momentum in the awards race is unstoppable at this point, and if she wins, I'm not going to be angry, but it's not the kind of performance that I usually respond to as strongly as some other types of performance. The movie features striking cinematography from Claire Mathen, who also shot the superb 2019 film Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and it features a score from Johnny Greenwood, who also wrote music this year for The Power of the Dog and Licorice Pizza. And while the music sets the mood, I also found it very overwhelming at times, particularly when watching it the second time at home, and that may just come down to the mix of the movie. 
This is not a biopic. The movie describes itself as historical fantasy, and much of it is dreamlike, lapsing into fantasy sequences and hallucinations. Part of me does wonder what Diana's surviving friends and family think of her depiction in this film. While it's common knowledge that she struggled with depression and bulimia, this Diana is borderline manic, at times teetering on the edge of sanity. Ultimately, I would have to say I respect this movie more than I enjoyed it. Like Annette, I think it vibrates on its own specific wavelength, which is really going to connect with a lot of people. And while it didn't quite resonate all the way with me, I'm sure for many that it provides a new perspective on a global icon who has practically passed into sainthood. And while Spencer is going to appear on many people's top 10 lists at the end of this year, it won't be on mine. I know what I face. If any man truly knew, he would bear his shame happily and turn away. David Lowry's The Green Knight is available for purchase on physical media and rental on several platforms after a release this summer. Lowry wrote and directed this retelling of the medieval tale of Gwen, nephew of King Arthur, who accepts a challenge from the mysterious Green Knight, then wrestles with the consequences of his actions. Should he land a blow, then one year and yuletide hence, he must seek me out yonder. To the Green Chapel, six nights to the north. He shall find me there and bend a knee and let me strike him in return. Be it a scratch on the check or a cut in the throat, I will return what was given to me. Gawain's journeys take him across the countryside where he encounters a bandit played by Gary Keoghan, a lord and his wife played by Joel Edgerton and Alicia Vikander, a talking fox, giants, and more. Going into The Green Knight, I was not actually familiar with the original story, which is a 14th century poem, so I didn't really know what to expect from this movie, but David Lowry is quickly becoming a must-see director for me, because no matter what the subject matter, he is making compelling and creatively challenging films, whether he's doing Peach Dragon or The Old Man and the Gun. The Green Knight was made on a modest, for the scope of this story at least, budget of $15 million, and Lowry creates an almost alien world as Gawain's moral compass is challenged at every turn. Stemming from his original encounter with the knight, Gawain knows that he is likely marching to his death, yet looks for ways to wriggle out of this bargain at every opportunity. Dev Patel is putting together a really compelling filmography following his film debut over a decade ago in the Best Picture winner Slumdog Millionaire with a resume that includes Lion, Hotel Mumbai, and the personal history of David Copperfield. And I look forward to even more movies where he gets to be the lead of the film because he's developing into a really interesting actor. Not just a good one, but an interesting one. A24 also continues to assemble one of the most eclectic film lineups of any distributor in cinema history. And this definitely has the bleak night nihilism that you can expect from a lot of A24 films, as well as the divisiveness. I feel like it may keep the audience at a little too much of a distance by the time we get to the end of it, but it is a visually stunning film with great performances, including a turn from A24 regular Ralph Innocent as The Green Knight. You may not agree that it's one of the best films of 2021, but I think that it is one of the most essential. Berenson's article, The Concrete Masterpiece. Three dangling participles, two split infinitives, and nine spelling errors in the first sentence alone. Some of those are intentional. <laughs> Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch is now available via premium video on demand and will be on physical media in the U.S. on December 28th. And Anderson is perhaps the most consistent filmmaker working today in that you know exactly what to expect from his films. Meticulous production design and shot construction, dry yet bitingly clever dialogue, a hand 
handmade aesthetic as though each set was constructed by Anderson himself, a generous sense of detachment, and an ensemble cast made up largely of Anderson's hand-assembled acting troupe over the past two decades. For better or for worse, The French Dispatch delivers all of those things in an anthology format, nominally a tour through the last issue of a magazine that began as the satellite arm of a newspaper called the Liberty Kansas Evening Sun. The French Dispatch is told in vignettes interspersed with the goings-on in the offices of the magazine. Bill Murray plays the editor of the magazine, and I wish that we'd been able to spend more time with his staff because I loved the office goings-on at the French Dispatch. It is just as quirky as you would expect, and you see faces like Elizabeth Moss, Fisher Stevens, and Jason Schwartzman so little, despite the fact that they're all compelling actors. Most of the film is devoted to the stories in the magazine themselves, and they all work to some degree, although some better than others. The first vignette is my favorite of the four, but also the shortest, as Owen Wilson's travel writer takes us on a bicycle tour of the town of Anhui, France. The writing in this segment crackles with joke-a-second energy, and the sets fall on the right side of the sometimes gratingly adorable style that Anderson likes to employ, but the energy probably couldn't be sustained much past the runtime of the segment, which is probably also why we get the least of it. The second segment, called The Concrete Masterpiece, focuses on a convicted murderer played by Benicio Del Toro, who is also a brilliant artist bound to be revered as one of the greats of his time. I'm gonna need art supplies. Canvas, stretches, brushes, turpentine. What do you want to paint? The future. With prison guard Leia Sadu as his muse, Del Toro growls his way through a typically idiosyncratic performance. Adrian Brody plays the art dealer determined to make Del Toro the next big thing and frustrated by his incarcerated genius's continual delays in delivering his next masterpiece. The staging of this segment in particular is very clever. Scenes of chaos are staged as still-life landscapes complete with actors frozen in place and objects suspended in thin air. The story within the story is told by the always delightful Tilda Swinton, who could play every role in every movie as far as I'm concerned, who plays the writer of the article. The third section, Revisions to a Manifesto, features Frances McDormand as a writer profiling a student revolution led by Timothy Chalamet. It's a little damp. Physically or metaphorically? Both, based on the cover and the first four sentences. Don't criticize my manifesto. Oh, you don't want remarks? I don't need remarks, do I? I only asked you to proofread it because I thought you'd be even more impressed by how good it already is. It's a fine segment, but it's also the one that seemed to meander the most, maybe because it's in the anchor spot of the movie. I don't really have a lot of bad things to say about it. It's just that it wasn't quite as outstanding for me as the other segments in the film. Finally, Jeffrey Wright leads a segment called The Private Dining Room of the Commissioner as he tells talk show host Liev Schreiber about an evening with a local policeman that devolves into kidnapping, attempted poisoning, and a jailbreak. Edward Norton and Willem Dafoe help to round out the cast of this segment, which employs animation and live action, and is the most kinetic of all the segments. And this is also the one that I would say is the biggest departure from what you would expect to see from Wes Anderson. Maybe that's why it also stood out so much for me. Overall, The French Dispatch is precisely a Wes Anderson film, no more and no less. Most of Anderson's films, I think, fall into this category for me. A few, like The Royal Tenenbaums, Rushmore, and The Grand Budapest Hotel, have that extra spark that I think puts them aside 
step above, and a couple like Moonrise Kingdom seem derivative even by Anderson standards and fall a little bit behind, but I would put The French Dispatch somewhere in the middle with a lot of Anderson's other films, although I think it should rightfully be considered for its many technical merits, which make it a pleasant way to spend a couple of hours. Have you never done pictures without those eyelashes? No, no, and I never will, because that's my trademark. And, you know, if I take that away, then it's not me. And no one's going to want to look at me without my trademark, so I hold on to that. The Eyes of Tammy Faye is available for rental and on physical media, and star Jessica Chastain is the buzzy one here. Also in the Best Actress race, Chastain plays Tammy Faye Baker, wife of televangelist Jim Baker, played by 2021 MVP Andrew Garfield. Together in the story based on their real lives, they laid the groundwork for a Christian TV empire that generated hundreds of millions of dollars and ruled the airwaves during the 1970s and 1980s. But the Bakers' own excesses lead to their downfall as their empire begins to crumble around them. I'm hearing there are articles like this in the paper every day. The secular press hates us because we're winning millions of souls for Jesus. Oh, Tammy Faye, you follow blindly. In the end, all you are is blind. This is a showcase role for Chastain and a showcase movie for her, really, because she transforms herself into the heavily made-up Tammy Faye Baker, who is herself an enigma. She's someone who suffers greatly as the result of her husband's indiscretions, yet is also his biggest champion. And Baker helps to found an organization that was intolerant of homosexuals at the height of the AIDS crisis, yet Baker herself shows great compassion for all who come to her for help and guidance. And how sad is that? And we as Christians, who are supposed to love everyone, are afraid so badly of an AIDS patient that we will not go up to them and put our arm around them and tell them that we care. The Eyes of Tammy Faye is a pretty standard biopic, but it's buoyed by its headline cast. Garfield's resume this year alone is award-worthy, and he's equal parts despicable and pathetic as Jim Baker, a pious sinner whose morality ends where temptation begins. There are also a lot of great faces in supporting roles, including Cherry Jones as Tammy Faye's mother and Vincent D'Onofrio as Jerry Falwell, the infamous leader of the moral majority. God is my witness. I made a pledge to continue to expose the sins in this country. The Bible explicitly forbids homosexuality. There's no gray area. You know, we're all just people made out of the same old dirt. And God didn't make any junk. <laughs> One movie shaping up to potentially be an award show juggernaut is The Power of the Dog, which is now streaming on Netflix. Writer-director Jane Campion is at the top of a lot of people's leaderboards in several categories with this adaptation of the book by author Thomas Savage. Much of this movie is a battle of the wills between cattle driver and rancher Phil Burbank, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, and his brother's new wife Rose, played by Kirsten Dunst, who comes to the ranch along with her son Peter, who's played by Cody Smith-McPhee. Phil is, not to mince words, a vicious cold-hearted bastard, a self-imposed outcast who sees any presence other than his own as a threat to his territory. He's lived a solitary life with his brother George, played by Jesse Plemons, for so long that his only goal is to drive away the new family that he sees as unworthy and invaders. This is another movie that a lot of people might not be into. It's a very slow burn, but I think it's also a tension-filled slow burn. It's a movie that's able to wring tension out of a scene where two characters talk while one of them makes a rope, 
which is not exactly an easy task. And I think it's a case where the hype might have gotten to me a bit too early, despite my best intentions, because at first glance, I didn't really see this huge best picture bound movie that it had been hyped as, but it really is one of those films that sticks with you and that you think about in the days after you see it. Part of that reason is that what you have here is a low-key psychological thriller, and I think it will probably improve on repeat viewing as the true natures of all of its characters are revealed, and in those taut scenes, we see the balance of power shift as the subtleties of each interaction are made more and more clear. This is undoubtedly one of the best ensemble casts of the year. Kirsten Dunst plays a woman in heartbreaking decline, trapped in a house with a man determined to torture her psychologically, and a husband whose best and worst quality is that he can only see how things work in the ideal world. Cody Smith-McPhee, who most people may only know as the newest version of Nightcrawler in the X-Men franchise, gives a career-redefining performance as Kirsten Dunst's son, an outcast who is bullied by those older and tougher than he is, who has to find a way to survive life on a ranch with a suffering mother, an often absent stepfather, and an uncle who seems determined to reform him into his idea of a real man or break him trying. Now, gentlemen, look, see, that's what you do with the clock. It's really just for wine drips. Oh, got that, boys. Only for the drip. (laughs) (laughs) Now get us some food. And Benedict Cumberbatch anchors everything as Phil Burbank, who really is a chilling presence throughout this film. It is a transformational performance and up there with the best work that Cumberbatch has ever done. This is the time to think about making a new start. I know nothing else but Belfast. Exactly. There's a whole world out there. Finally, another film that's probably going to be in contention with the power of the dog at just about every awards ceremony is Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, which is in some theaters still and is also available currently in the U.S. for purchase on digital platforms. Branagh gets autobiographical in this story about a family in Belfast, Northern Ireland during the era of the Troubles in the late 1960s. Jude Hill gives an outstanding performance as Buddy, a boy who has to deal with the problems of a child, like navigating his first crush, and the problems that no child should face, like the daily threat of anti-Catholic violence erupting on his street. Kids the same age as ours are getting killed around the corner. Well, well, be careful. You can't be with them 24 hours a day. Can't take away their childhood either. Jamie Dornan plays Buddy's father, often away at work and being pressured to join the angry mob by its local leader. And Catriona Balfe plays Buddy's mother, trying desperately to hold the family together and shield her children from the horrors of the world. Giving two great supporting performances are Judy Dench and Siren Hines, who play Buddy's grandparents, who only want him to live the carefree life that a boy his age should be living. If I could come up with something smart about that... Maybe I could stay up at the top desk and wait till she gets back there. Or you could say the moon's made of green cheese and drop down a place. Or you could do the project together, you and the young lady. You get the same marks and maybe end up on the same seat together. Awards Buzz is centered around basically the entire cast for a reason. This is a beautifully acted film, directed with heart and grace by Branna, who is also sure to be in the Oscar conversation. The film is given a beautifully timeless look via stark black and white photography from frequent Branna collaborator Harris Zambarlikos. 
Belfast is proof that you can make small movies about big things, and it's great to see a director like Branna, who has recently taken on larger projects like Thor, Artemis Fowl, and Murder on the Orient Express, prove that he can still tell these intimate stories. What do you want? I want my family with me. I want you. And these are just a few of the films that are in contention for the Oscars and other awards this year. I actually love this award season because there are so many films, largely because many of them were delayed from last year, that there really is no consensus frontrunner. You have movies like Power of the Dog and Belfast that might be leading the pack, but there's a sense that that balance of power could change at any time. And I think that's the way it should be. I think everyone should be open to changing their mind, revisiting these films, and it's going to be very exciting to see how things unfold. So that does it with this wrap-up of movies. I'm going to have another one before the end of the year where I talk about some that are currently in theaters or will be hitting theaters right around the holidays, so stay tuned for that. And make sure that you subscribe here on the Podcast Network. As I mentioned, this is an audio-exclusive review, so only subscribers to the audio channels are going to be able to get this one, but you are also going to be able to get the audio versions of everything that I do over on the YouTube channel. We're doing a bunch of reviews to end the year, and you don't want to miss any of that. The Podcast Network is also available on a lot of different platforms including Spotify and Apple and if there is a rating option on those platforms and you like what you hear I would really appreciate if you go in there and leave some feedback because it certainly helps the channel grow and if you don't like what you hear uh feel free not to your choice Thanks so much for listening to this roundup of the awards season movies I will be back very soon with even more stay safe out there and I'll see you next time